Okay, Acts, <coughs> Acts 9 today, 1 through 19a. I heard, I heard one preacher say that this person probably shouldn't have been preaching, that uh, I don't prepare at all, I just say what the Holy Spirit brings to me. Uh, conversely, as preachers, we can trust too much in our preparation. You know, Charles Spurgeon would say on the way to the pulpit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this week, for obvious reasons, I have not been able to prepare as much as I would want. And I remember Tim Keller was addressing some students once, and he said, on that Sunday morning when you haven't prepared as much as you want, what do you do? Prepare more or pray more. So I say that to say, though I believe in the principle of preparation, God doesn't need my preparation. The Holy Spirit works by the power of the word. And so I trust him this morning and trust that you will bear with me if I'm not as clear as I'd like to be. Um, But uh, let's go to God in prayer. Lord, you've given us this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to you. Pray that your gospel would be proclaimed, that your word would feed your people for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read the word together this morning and stand as we read. But Saul, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, 
to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So (coughs) Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> talking a little bit before church about Luke, the writer of Acts, and it's clear how much care he took with this. He truly was a historian, a careful historian. And we have in Christianity, we place a great value on history. The Bible really is redemptive history. This is the history. This is our history. This is the history of Paul and his conversion. This is the way that Paul describes himself and this conversion and call to apostleship in 1 Corinthians 15.8. He says of himself, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Uh, This story really is the beginning of that comment, Paul's comment. Last of all, one untimely born. The best of history teachers um, don't just give you facts or dates or people to memorize, but they give you relevance. Why is this history important? How does this history impact you? And Luke is a very good history teacher. This is not only history, but uh, it's history from God's point of view. And very often in history, you don't want anything but the facts. But when you're dealing with God's point of view, you want the facts and the implications given to you. And so Luke gives us both. The danger in looking at historical passages is to allegorize them. We do this. The obvious example that's always used is David and Goliath. I'm David. My problems are Goliath. The stones are Bible verses I sling at my problem. That's allegory, and that's not what the original author intended by his history. And the second danger is that we learn no lessons at all. We just look at the facts of history. But the Bible is the history of Christ's faithfulness. It's recorded redemptive history, and it is our foundation. You can think of the history of the Bible as something like God's resume, We see what he has done, therefore we believe in what he is doing and will do. The history in the Bible is our foundation. I think I've probably shared in the past, but it's probably been a while, Michael Horton's four D's. I really like these. These are a good way to think about this. They are, in a sense, a rubric for living. Um, So the four D's. This is the way they are described is that 
all of our faith and practice arise out of the first deed, the drama of, of scripture. That is the history, the events that happens, the drama, the big story that traces the plot of history from creation to consummation with Christ as its alpha and omega beginning and end. And then he goes on and out of the throbbing verbs of this unfolding drama comes the second D. God reveals stable nouns, doctrines. So from the drama come doctrines. We have a story, but out of that story produce teachings, doctrines. From what God does in history, we are taught certain things about who he is, what it means to be created in his image, fallen and redeemed, renewed and glorified in union with Christ. As the father creates his church in his son and by his spirit, we come to realize what this covenant community is and what it means to belong to it. What kind of future is promised to us in Christ and how we are to live here and now in light of it all. So that's doctrine from the story, from the drama comes doctrine. The third D, the drama and doctrine provoke us to praise and worship. The third D is doxology. And together, these three coordinates give us a new way of living in the world as disciples, which is the fourth D. So you see something of a progression there? We begin with the story, the history that is in the Bible. And from that come doctrines, rules for living. And from that comes praise, doxology. And all these things together make up our discipleship, our rubric for living. So I like those four Ds uh, from Michael Horton. And so here in this history that we're given from Luke, we have lessons to learn. So what are the lessons that we learn? And uh, As always, the Bible is about Christ. So I have four lessons. Uh, that is, the first is Christ's apostle. Paul is our apostle. Christ's apostle is our apostle. Second, Christ remains absolutely sovereign. He's sovereign then, he's sovereign now. He never changes from yesterday, today, and forever. Third is Christ's radical grace. It's for Paul, it's also for us. Christ's radical grace is for us. And fourth, Christ's church is our family. Christ's church is our family. So those are the four lessons I'm drawing out for you this morning. <laughs> so let's begin with point number one. Christ's apostle is our Apostle, We read in verses uh, beginning in verse one, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any way, anyone belonging to the way men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. <coughs> we have this man named Saul at this point. We know him better as Paul. Saul is this. Hebrew of Hebrews, he calls himself in Philippians. He, he has so much zeal for the faith of his fathers to the point that he persecuted the church. It says, still breathing threats and murder against Christ's disciples. The theme that runs throughout this passage, I believe, is impossibility. Impossibility and the impossibility and improbability of, of Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, being saved, being called, not only called, but being called to apostleship is impossible 
but for God's work. And that's really the theme that runs throughout this passage is the impossibility of it all. And yet God does it. Impossibility leads to credibility in this case, in the history. So this is the history of our apostle, the apostle Paul. Um, And I say our apostle because the office of apostle is not only for the first century church, but it's for us. Not that we have apostles, but that Paul is our apostle. Paul is called to bring the word to us specifically. We read more specifically of Paul's calling in verse 15. (coughs) God is talking to Ananias and he says, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. Paul is Christ's tool to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. It's impossible that he become apostle, that he become called to be not only saved, but to be a shepherd of Christ's flock. He goes from really one who would crucify Christians to being one who would carry the cross of Christ and carry it to the nations, bring the name that he hated so much to the nations. So Paul is our apostle. Now we see a little bit of how much he hated Christ in the fact that he wanted to go to Damascus. Damascus is north of Jerusalem, about 135 miles, a six-day journey by foot. So if you're going to walk 135 miles over the course of six days, you're serious about this. He's bringing letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Now the Uh, magistrates of Damascus were probably Roman and they probably wouldn't have respected these letters so much, but the synagogues would have respected the letters from the high priest and and permitted Paul to take these Christians back to Jerusalem. We also see the glory in the, the advance of the gospel we've read of Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria. We've read of the the Samarians accepting the gospel. And nowhere has it been mentioned that the gospel has come to Damascus. And yet we read that there are disciples in Damascus. So the Great Commission is being fulfilled. So the first point there is that Christ's apostle is our apostle. We have to remember that even the epistles of Paul, they get their validity from this history. The impossibility of this man. Who is this man? Well, he was called specifically by Christ for this purpose. And so we take confidence in his epistles and in his writings to us. <coughs> Second point is that uh, Christ, uh, that of Christ's sovereignty. Christ remains absolutely sovereign. In verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. 
the shorter catechism uh, <coughs> question 26 asks how doth Christ execute the office of a king the answer Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies we see all those elements here this is when we say sovereignty, I think oftentimes we think of just the general power of God. Sovereignty has to do with kingship, with ruling. So we're asking, how is Christ the king? He says Christ is a king, first in subduing us to himself. Uh, <laughs> we can no more come to God on our own than Paul did on this day on the road to Damascus. Paul was not... Uh, a fan of Christ, he was subdued by Christ. So we see the sovereignty of God in him subduing Paul on this travel, that he, he sent him to the ground in fear, and then he redeemed him. In ruling and defending us, we see this persistent rule of Christ over uh, all things, even as the gospel's going out throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and now to Damascus. And he's defending his church. Here Paul is coming to Damascus to take these this people, Christ's people, to harm them and even to kill them. And King Jesus defends them by, and then the catechism says, in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Paul's the enemy of, of Christ, and he doesn't just strike him dead, but he actually, more powerfully, he redeems him, redeems him with the gospel. So these things are all on display here. Um, <clears throat> we see Christ's sovereignty, his ongoing government in our lives. The sovereignty gives us comfort. It gives us confidence and service to our king. Uh, John Calvin writes, Luke sets down in this place a noble history and a history worthy to be remembered concerning the conversion of Paul. The Lord did not only bring him under and make him subject to his commandment when he raged like an untamed beast, but also how he made him another and new man. And whereas such a cruel wolf was not only turned to, into a sheep, but did also put on the nature of a shepherd. The wonderful hand of God did show itself manifestly therein. That's the sovereign power of God. Christ is sovereignly ruling his kingdom, expanding his kingdom here. So that's the second point, is Christ's sovereignty. <coughs> How Christ's radical saving grace for Saul and for us says in verse 6, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to, into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither, they neither ate nor drank. So we see here in verse uh, 7 that the men didn't really understand that all these men were traveling, but Paul was specifically singled out for this task, for this calling, for this salvation. And there's a little bit of a conflict, it appears, between 
the end of verse 7 and verse chapter 22, verse 9, where Saul's recounting this story. And he says in that place that he, that they saw and heard the phenomenon, or, but they didn't uh, or they saw and heard the light. Let's see. Yeah. And that in chapter 22, they saw the light, but it seems like they didn't hear. And here it seems like they they heard but didn't see. But I think if we synthesize the two places, we can tell that um, they saw and heard the phenomenon, but they did not understand what was going on in some sense. And that Paul himself was specifically singled out for this uh, salvation, for this calling. It says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. This is the power of Christ, the power of Christ to subdue. In the Old Testament, we read of people being blinded by God. In Zechariah, when he doesn't believe, he, he loses his speech. God has the power to do these things. And this is really, in this story, the removal of Saul's capacity. Um, Saul was probably quite wealthy. He was a, uh, Tarsus was a happening place in the Roman kingdom. And um, if to be a, Paul, Paul was a um, Roman citizen, and to be a Roman citizen, you had to own property. So his parents probably owned property in Tarsus. And he was a man of great learning. He was taught by the great Gamaliel that we read of in chapter 5. Uh, Paul was a great man, a great mind, had much of the Bible uh, memorized and learned. And here Christ removes his capacity, removes his, his wit, just brings him to the ground. And that doesn't always feel like saving grace, but that's really the first step of saving grace is the crumbling of our pride. Uh, it says they led him by the hand, which means they are probably on foot and not, not uh, with horses. They brought him into Damascus and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. I, I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder if there's symbolism in the three days. This sort of death and resurrection symbolism. And we see a repentance to newness of life, that he neither ate nor drank, that he was in some sense grieved and dealing with God. Craig Keener says, New Testament examples usually conjoin fasting with prayer, but fasting was commonly an expression of mourning or repentance. According to his this narrative, Saul does not change religions. He learns the true way to follow his Jewish religion. So we see some sense of repentance here from Paul. We see that further uh, in verse 11 when it says that he is praying. Behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias to come in and lay his hands on him. And then again, we see finally, there's no confession given here in the text, but we see that Paul became a Christian, that the scales fell from his eyes in verse 18, and then he arose and was baptized, and his condition was switched. He began taking food, and he was strengthened. So we see something here of a death and resurrection, a giving of new life to Paul through repentance and faith. (coughs) 
we see further the radical saving grace of Christ in the story of Ananias. Um, now there was a disciple at Damascus in verse 10 named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, that the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Um, we see here an initial willingness from Ananias. God calls to him and he says, Here I am, Lord. Then when Ananias finds out the task, there's a subsequent hesitancy about it. And I don't think it's necessarily a sinful hesitancy. I think Luke includes this to show us just, again, the impossibility of this whole thing. This... <laughs> This man's come to, to haul Christians off to Jerusalem, and you want me to go talk to him. It's just insane. It's, it's very much like uh, the call to Philip to leave Samaria, to leave what's going on in Samaria, all the disciples there, and go down to the desert road to, to one man, to evangelize one man. God's commandments always don't always make sense. Often they don't make sense. They feel absurd. But these two men are given really a double vision, both Ananias and Paul or Saul. And uh, this really, again, serves to confirm what's thought impossible. And you notice the difference between, say, the call of Philip to go to Samaria or the call of Philip to go to evangelize the eunuch or even in a few chapters the call of Peter to go and evangelize uh, the Gentiles and Cornelius and that as we talked about last week men are often called to share the gospel that's how it works in Christ's providence he's always calling us to share the gospel but in this circumstance he's directly called Saul is directly called by God there's a difference and that difference is that he's called to apostleship And yet, the church is not left out of it. Ananias is still called to be a part of it. Ananias is still involved in Paul's conversion. And even in Galatians, Paul takes great pains both to set up the fact that his gospel is directly from God and that it's confirmed by the apostles. So he has a unique calling, but the church is still a part of his calling. Ananias is a part of his calling. And this is a part of Christ's radical grace. We learn from this, from Christ's radical grace, that if Paul can be saved, even I can be saved, even you can be saved, even that family member that we're praying for who just seems so far gone can be saved. And that is grace upon grace to know that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, that salvation belongs to the Lord. 
you notice that if a person has been involved with the church and then begins to not show up for a time, very often the reason behind that is sin. They're concerned. They have guilt. And we see here in verse 11 that Paul has been confronted by the Lord and then it says, Behold, he is praying. If we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, if, we're, if we become new men, when we are encountering our own failures, as Paul surely was just wrecked by his failure, we don't run from the Lord, but we run to the Lord. This is the saving grace of Christ. We can apply this, what Paul is experiencing, we can apply it to ourselves. <clears throat> Calvin says, in this history we have a universal figure of that grace which the Lord showeth forth daily in calling us all. All men do not set themselves so violently against the gospel, yet nevertheless both pride and also rebellion against God are naturally engendered in all men. We are all wicked and cruel naturally. Therefore, in that we are turned to God that cometh to pass by the wonderful and secret power of God, contrary to nature. The papists also ascribe praise of our turning to, unto God, to the grace of God, yet only in part, because they imagine that we work together. But when, as the Lord doth mortify our flesh, he subdueth us and bringeth <clears throat> under as he did Paul. Neither is our will one hair readier to obey than was Paul's until such time as the pride of our heart being beaten down and he have made us not only flexible but also willing to obey and follow. Therefore such is the beginning of our conversion that the Lord seeketh us of his own accord when we wander and go astray though he be not called and sought that the change that he changes the stubborn affections of our hearts to the end he may have us to be apt to be taught. <coughs> Excuse me. So Christ's grace, Christ's radical grace in that he saves sinners. That's what we see in Paul and that's what we see in our own lives. And finally, fourthly, we see that Christ's church is our family. Verse 17, And so Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him. What does that mean? Just grab his neck. And just, <laughs> Come on, Saul. Um, laying hand, what, is there some magic in the laying on of hands? Of course, there is no magic, but it, it represents something. It re represents communion. It represents fellowship. It represents, in some way, the passing of uh, of Christ from from the church to Paul. 
Thank you, brother. <laughs> now, I want to back up a little bit, and I want you to notice there's six ways that the church is described in this passage. And they're all really wonderful. Back in verse 1, he says that Paul was, Saul was still breathing threats against the disciples of the Lord. That's the first one. And it's used again of Ananias, that he's a disciple of the Lord. So the first thing that we are is we are disciples. A disciple is one who learns, one who learns from a master. Remember the Great Commission? Part of the Great Commission is teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. So that's one thing that we are as the church, as we are disciples. We're followers of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Second description of the church is in uh, verse 2. So that if he found any belonging to the way. This is the first time this name is used in Acts, but it's used several times afterward. The way. The church was called the way. Which kind of gives us the sense that there's one way. This is the way. This is the way to Christ. This is God's path. The third way that this is uh, the church is described is in verse 4 when Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks who he is and he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul is persecuting Christians. He's persecuting believers and yet Christ identifies himself with those believers. If you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. You're attacking me. So, the next way that we are identified as we're identified with Christ, that Christ has an ongoing involvement with his people, that he's loving, protecting and reigning over us in his providence, that we are united to the head that is Christ. <clears throat> in the fourth way, in verse 13, Ananias says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. We're called saints. Saints is the same word, root word as the word holy. It means to be set apart. We're set apart, sanctified unto the Lord. The fifth way is in verse 14. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Remember back in Genesis when it says after uh, Seth is born that they began to call upon the name of the Lord. To seek the name of the Lord. We call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We seek him in prayer as our God. (coughs) The sixth way is in verse 17. And I just love this one. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Imagine. I think of Brother Jim. Right? He, that name just suited him so well. I couldn't call him anything else. Brother Jim. He's a, a member of our family. And to think that Paul, the hater, the persecutor of the church, the hater of Christ Jesus, was brought in and called Brother Saul. So the church is our family.
when we're called to Christ, when we're redeemed to Christ's family, when we call God Father, we're redeemed not only to God, not only to Christ, but we're redeemed to a people, to a family. So that church attendance and fellowship and, and involvement in the church, is, of course it's a duty, but it should be far more than a duty, right? If it's our family, it is in fact an identity. Brother Saul, brother Jim, brother Zach, bro- this, we are in a family. This is our part of our identity. Church Father Cyprian is quoted as having said, No one can have God as his father who does not have the church as mother. Uh, Now that comment can make us uh, Protestants a little bit uncomfortable. God, God cannot be our father if the church is not our mother. What do we mean by that? Does the church somehow have to conjoin itself with God to, 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 to give us new birth? Is, is somehow the church and the Holy Spirit working in tandem to re- uh, give us new life in Christ? And the answer is uh, no and yes. The church, we are born into the kingdom by virtue of the gospel which is preached by the church. So in that sense, we are birthed into Christ's family through the gospel preached, through the preaching of the church. But more so, the church is our mother in uh, nurture, in nursing and in tutelage. Calvin says that our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school, the church's school, until we have been pupils all our lives. So Saul is brought into the family. He's called Brother Saul. Then his sight is regained. And he was he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So he's baptized, in which his sins were washed away. He was brought into the covenant family of God. And I think back again to the Ethiopian eunuch, who was this twice excluded man in the old covenant, now made full member. He baptized into the family of God. And then here again in this story, Saul, the God hater, the church killer, made full member into the body and family of Christ. So I want to just close with the history of Christ, this Christ who does not change. And I want to look at these four D's and what we learn with the, the four D's with regard to this passage. The first is the drama of this passage. What The history of this passage is that Christ sovereignly transformed the impossible Saul into a saint and shepherd. That's what happened in this passage. That's the drama. The doctrine of this passage, the the teaching that we gain from it, is that we learn that Christ continues to call and to save impossible sinners, drawing them to himself and to his family. The doxology of it is that Christ is to be praised, our most gracious, powerful, and sovereign king. The king who conquers the enemy and saves sinners like you and me. And the impossible Saul. He's to be worshipped to be praised. That's doxology. And fourth, discipleship, that Christ, the head of our nurturing mother, the church, 
and that in Him we grow under the training and tutelage that He's given us. And we train up others. The disciples become disciplers. Until we all grow toward a fullness and maturity in Christ. Amen.